Welcome to the Grattan Podcast channel. You're with Megan from the Grattan Institute and today's podcast is part two of our series on prospects for a low growth world. One of the big policy debates in Australia and around the world right now is whether economic growth will be slower in the future than in the past. It's been nearly a decade since the global financial crisis and economic growth remains weak in many rich nations. Australia has been an exception to the malaise, but growth has slowed as the mining boom winds down. In fact, per capita incomes in Australia have been falling for the past five years. A growing number of voices are wondering whether we've entered a new normal of slower economic growth, which would have big implications for Australians' future living standards, our public policy choices, and the state of our politics. This podcast series has been an opportunity to weigh the evidence for and against a low growth future and think through the consequences. Before I welcome our guest today, I'd just like to ask our listeners for some feedback. This two-part series has been a slightly different style to our usual podcast, and if you've enjoyed it, then we'd love to get your feedback on Twitter or Facebook, or send us an email and let us know that you'd like to hear more like this, and if there's any topics you'd like us to explore at this deeper level. And on that note, I'd like to welcome back Australian Perspectives Fellow, Brendan Coates, and Productivity Growth Director, Jim Minifee. Welcome once again, Jim and Brendan. Hi, Megan. Hi, Megan. Brendan, can you start us off with a quick recap of what we discussed in part one of this series? Sure, Megan. So last time we spoke about the prospects that economic growth could be slower in the future than in the past. So, you know, as you mentioned in the intro, we've been through a period of pretty weak economic growth, especially uh, productivity growth, which is what ultimately determines long run living standards, both in Australia and around the world. And the podcast last time really discussed uh, two possible conclusions from re our recent economic performance, which are, you know, the first that we're potentially seeing a long-term permanent slowdown in the productive potential of the economy. So it's a speed limit on how fast uh, the economy can grow due to some combination of slower or less profound advances in technology. This is the Robert Gordon thesis, um, population aging, diminishing returns to education and so on. And on the other side of that debate is uh, simply the observation that uh, advanced economies have fallen short of their speed limits instead of it being a, a long-term slowdown because we're, you know, we're going through the tail end of the global recession, balance sheet recessions are long-lasting and very deep, and perhaps monetary policy hasn't been as easy as it probably needed to be, and also in odds that we've seen the come down from the mining boom. And the upshot, I think, is that it's probably some combination of the above, um, but in, in Jim, I'll get you to come in on this as well, it's probably been we're stronger waiting towards the second cyclical explanation that we're not doing as well as we could combined with the fact that slower cyclical growth has meant that firms haven't invested as much as they could have. Um, but one comment that I have would be on my own reflection on the podcast last week is I'm probably slightly less optimistic than you that perhaps more of it is a long-term slowdown. And in part, I'm less optimistic because even if the, the cyclical story turns out to be sort of in, on the improve, Without some sort of productivity boom, um, things like population aging and such means we've probably baked in some slower growth than in the past. Yeah, I think that's most likely in the right way to think about those trends. Uh, we don't know quite how it's going to play out. Uh, there are a mixture of structural and cyclical forces. As we discussed last time, potentially the cycle will turn and that will help us. But um, as you say, demographic and maybe some other forces are going to tend to reduce that structural growth rate to some extent. And then the big wild card is whether these incredible technologies we see across a whole range of domains are going to end up manifesting in a way that shows up in economic growth. So rather than sort of rehashing that, that discussion, we'll move on. Um, and we do certainly encourage you to listen to last week's podcast. I think it's a very good discussion of some of these issues and a bit of a deep dive. So today we're going to focus on what the implications would be for the things that we care about. So for living standards, for budget, for economic policy and so on, and how we should respond to the risk that growth is lower. Because obviously we're talking about a question of uncertainty here. We don't know what the world is going to look like. And so if you're a policymaker sitting in Canberra, in Melbourne, or in the Reserve Bank offices in Sydney, um, uh, like uh, Philip Lowe, you, you're thinking about what, how we're going to deal with the uncertainty around what this outcome looks like. So. Um, with that, I'll hand it over to you, Megan. Yeah, so I, I mean, I would assume that the most obvious way for governments to respond to this potential low growth future would be to undertake the kind of reforms that would boost economic growth. Um, so, Jim, I'd ask you, what, what's the best way to go about that? Yeah, so if you zoom right out, it's pretty clear that um, economies are at very different living standards and different productivity levels and income levels around the world. And that one of the 
if you like, the correlates of those different achievements is policy. It's not the only thing that affects it, certainly not in the, in, in the short run at least, uh, but over the long run you can have these very, very large gaps open up between societies that you might have thought about as otherwise being very similar. Go back 100 years, Argentina had a per capita income very similar to Australia, and that's certainly not true today. Even amongst the rich world, you see Italy's had a dreadful last 10 or 15 years with very, very weak economic growth and a whole lot of negative outcomes for the society, um, You know, certainly by contrast to Australia. And so I think at a high level, we can say first that policy probably does matter in an important way over time. Um, High-functioning societies seem to do a bunch of things better and differently than low-functioning societies. And Australia has got a pretty good track record, so we can be at least somewhat confident that we haven't got everything wrong and that some of our institutions, policies uh, and our processes for selecting policies are things that we ought to, uh, we ought to be proud of. Um, it becomes much more difficult when you look at the effect of individual policies to believe that you can construct an agenda that is going to lead to a particular uptick, a particular quantitative uptick in, in economic growth over some period. Uh, but having said that, you can look and, uh, at, uh, at the range of different policy options and try to draw together evidence about what things work. And Grattan did that in uh, 2015 in an exercise that we called Game Changers. And since that time, over the last five years, we've dug into a range of other policy uh, uh, options to look at what they might do in the short, medium, long run uh, for economic growth. And so the things that rose to the top of that Game Changers prioritisation exercise included shifts to the tax mix. And effectively what you're looking for there is uh, to make the Australian economy a more attractive place to invest and to remove impediments to savings and to uh, and to work. And, uh, and the two that really come to the top there are look at a change to company taxation and, uh, and to some of the, the tax and benefit systems around uh, female workforce participation, second earner workforce uh, participation. Uh, so those are potentially quite valuable. And, uh, and yet, even if you were to do both of those, you might only get an uptick of GDP after a decade of one or 2% of GDP sort of number. And so that would, con- that would effectively uh, correspond to an increase in the growth rate of maybe 0.1 or 0.2% a year. So big enough to matter over, the, over that kind of period. It's not going to move you from 2 to 4% growth. And that's the nature of microeconomic policy. What you're looking for is a whole suite of processes that over time will improve the utilisation of our capital, improve the capital stock, improve skills, and just continually shave off inefficiencies in the economy and try to drive output in that way. And so when you look across that range, as, as, long as, as well as some of those big ticket items I just mentioned, you might look for boosting uh, the, the workforce participation of older uh, people, and the way to do that is mostly around eligibility for superannuation, pension ages, and so forth. Um, there's a big opportunity around better land use and use of infrastructure in our cities, which is where most of our economic activity occurs. And there are a number of areas where uh, costs are not well managed because people choose to drive uh, in a way that's unrelated to the costs they impose on other people due to congestion. I also land jump in use. on that. Yeah, yeah. And land use planning is yeah, the other yeah, big that's one, right. right? That's right. So, so on land use, obviously land drives, uh, land restrictions drive a lot about where people and businesses are located in cities and how intensively you can benefit from proximity to other economic activity. And we have a whole set of constraints that mean that people have got longer commutes and that firms are facing much higher costs because uh, proximity is much more expensive than it needs to be. And, you know, there's potentially quite a few percent uh, uh, boost to GDP if you were able to get some of those settings right. Now, it's going to be, you know, it's going to occur over time and you need to look to quite serious changes in taxation and land use planning and so forth. And so when you go down that list, in principle, if you could pull enough of those levers, you will see over the medium run quite significant changes to income per output and therefore income per capita. Uh, but it's 
given the, the character of getting policies done, you know, any given government is only going to get so much through. And so it's a long grind, but successful societies succeed in doing that long grind and they knock off those opportunities over time. And the one other point I think to make about at least medium term growth is you can get the headline GDP number to grow by adding people to the mix. And Australia is doing that very aggressively. So we might have averaged 3% GDP growth in recent years, uh, but only about 1.2% per capita GDP increases because the rest is all population driven. And then Megan, as you noted at the beginning, income growth has been even weaker because our terms of trade has tended to decline in recent years. So you can always sort of boot, expand the overall size of the economy by sort of throwing more people into the mix, but that's not actually driving living standards. So if we did a lot of these reforms that would make a, they would make a difference, as you say. Um, I think the game changers work, the, the big three were female workforce participation, changes the tax mix and older workforce participation. If you did three of them t- together, the estimate was about 6% boost to GDP. Um, over like a long period of time and that's a level shift so we it's important we think about as like economists think about this as there's a difference between the long-run continuing growth rate of the economy and boosting that is really hard versus you might do some things that mean you know you get more women into the workforce that boosts or older australians into the workforce that boosts the labor force then you get more you know capital investment because there's more labor there that boosts productivity to a degree Right, but they're all level effects rather exactly. than growth rate effects. Yeah, and the and that sort of, you know, holy grail of changing the, if you like, the sort of underlying endogenous, if you like, growth rate of the economy is, is all to do with um, innovation, making sure that you're you're getting the best from global technologies and deploying those rapidly and so forth. And I think the jury's a little bit out about whether it's possible for policymakers to shift if you like that underlying growth rate. But, you know, maybe life is just a whole series of these steps. You know, come back in 20 years and if we've done Grattan's wish list, there'll be another wish list on board about other opportunities to uh, to do things better. So that distinction between level and growth rate's important. Perhaps in practice, uh, it becomes less it becomes less binding because you've always got opportunities to change the level and that, that can mean that you get continued growth. I think it's also worth mentioning innovation in the sense because that's been a focus of the government's efforts, part of its economic strategy. The thing that's always struck me in this space is Australia is pretty small. Um, We only account for a small share of the sort of global share of ideas that are produced in any one period, a small share of researchers, a small share of patents. Um, And therefore, you might want to focus more on adoption as sort of the way that you... Yeah, you want, to, you want to be accelerating the diffusion of innovations across the economy. Now, that doesn't mean you can do it just through, uh, if you like, buying products off the shelf to be a receptive economy, one with a high degree of uh, ability to, to, to adapt and use technologies. You need to have a highly skilled workforce and maybe you need to have a big R&D activity yourself because a lot of the, of the activity in R&D is the D, the development component. Um, and uh, but certainly the notion that somehow productivity growth drives from technology that's homegrown is quite wrong in Australia's case. It's also worth mentioning, I think, that these reforms are hard. So all those things that were in Game Changers that are in the other reports we've written on this issue. So we did, Jim, you co-authored a, a report, Orange Book 2016, which was future priorities for the incoming Australian government, um, whoever it was before the, the 2016 election, and then your own report, Stagnation Nation. They all talk about the kind of um, big reforms that you would need to do, but none of them are politically easy. And we haven't done that many of these kinds of reforms in the last sort of decade or so. Like one observation I would have is that the pace of economic reform in Australia has perhaps slowed a little bit from where we say were through the 80s and 90s. And that's that era, I think, can be fetishize a little bit too much to a degree but if you sort of we track all the reforms that have taken place there were lots of big ones through the 80s and 90s floating the dollar um you know an independent central bank enterprise bargaining all these other different deregulation of some of the big sectors like energy and telecommunications which have their own issues um that particularly that we're dealing with now on energy but you compare that to more recently we haven't done as many and they're all politically pretty hard to do they all involve big trade-offs Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you can only do those reforms, each of them, once. You've done them. You can't revisit those those potential glory days. And so the agenda does move on. 
And, you know, arguably there's backsliding and you try to prevent that. But um, at, I, think, I think you're right, getting the political capital and spending it uh, is, is always a challenge for governments, particularly if you're in an environment where the tailwinds that might support improvements in community living standards, even if you're seeing some rocky changes and so forth, are, are no longer blowing. So you're facing headwinds and then you're trying to get these tough reforms through. That makes it that much more painful for segments of the community and therefore they're just that much more resistant to change. So I suppose my... I, I was just going to say, I think, I think as, as, I, as I mentioned, that, that the character of the, the type of agenda that you want to uh, prosecute also shifts over time. We're now a much more globalised economy with much more freely flowing capital and larger trade share and technology and human capital becomes that much more important. And so over the longer run, the sort of topics that we've just covered potentially become less important than skills and uh, um, other aspects that are, that are driving innovation. But also the community is much more exposed now than they were before to some of these global forces. And, you know, so the agenda is not just about economic growth. People care about other things. Um, and so that just makes the mix that much harder if you want to keep driving income up. It's probably worth mentioning briefly then the sort of human capital kind of reforms you might do. So improving schools and whatnot. And I think conceptually, most economists don't have any issue at all with the idea that you would want to invest more in human capital, improve skills, improve the productive capacity of the economy. Because we are kind of facing an issue, my understanding is, where we're looking at a lot of the kind of sort of less skilled jobs are being overtaken by things like, you know, robotics and and, and tech. Um, and trade. And trade. And so you are looking at a situation where people need to be upskilled in order to even come into the job market, yes? Yeah, that's right. And I think a really good framework here is that there's a race between technology and education. And to some extent, Australia's done quite well in that race. So the um, if you compare our experience in terms of income inequality to that of the US, our college premium is lower. The extent to which hourly incomes have diverged is much, much lower in Australia than elsewhere. And that's partly because the extent to which our, our uh, workforce has become upskilled is greater than in the US. And that's partly because we've had educational attainment improvement. It's also because of our skilled migration program. And those things have tended to some extent to keep a lid on the growth of inequality of hourly earnings. Um, but it hasn't been fully successful and a significant fraction of the gains have gone to people higher up the income distribution. And so one of the great things about focusing on skills and education in the, as, a, as a growth driver is that it's, it's, also, um, it's also got attractive properties from an income distribution perspective. But it takes a long time to pay off, right? You start to educate people better in kindergarten, they're not going to be joining the workforce straight away, although perhaps that's, a, that's an issue that Grattan could look at in a future report, of just getting <laughs> a little bit more child labour out into the Australian workforce. If we've got very skilled primary school kids, surely they can be making more of a contribution. I'm not quite sure how to respond to that one. <laughs> what I was going to say, but perhaps instead of taking the uh, the uh, children children down the mines path, would be that how, how you essentially the hard thing with human capital. It's the same with infrastructure. Is that we know in principle that these are the things that we should be doing more of and doing better. But the hard part is in doing them better. As sort of Pete Goss, our schools program director, has shown, the challenge in the school space is. What, knowing what works and what doesn't. Like we don't have the, as much evidence as we would like. And so the government's done, the Commonwealth government has done the sort of Gonski 2.0 school reforms, which take you down the path of better funding, matching the funding to student need. So um, that's certainly a step in the right direction. But then what that money is spent on and what we know, the evidence of what would work and what doesn't, I think is still much more of an open question than what we would hope. Yeah, and I think that's why this, our school ed program is recommending that the system move to an adaptive and learning model where you're quite explicitly running the system with a number of objectives. Of course, you, you've got to deliver good education now, but you also want to be learning, running experiments and learning across the system and making sure that the, um, the successful teaching approaches and school management approaches are, uh, are known about and can be can be disseminated to the, through the rest of the network. 
So if we do all these things, as we say, we boost growth to a degree, maybe, well, you also have to introduce the concept of uncertainty about how many of these things, these big reforms that we will do. So my my base case um, is still that, you know, we're probably looking at a world where absent some sort of product non-policy related productivity boom, you might be looking at somewhat lower growth in future. And certainly the risk is is very much there. So I think you probably have to start from the position when we think about what to do um, as policymakers outside boosting growth, that we have to start from the proposition that you may well face lower growth than in the past and deal with the consequences of it. So what will that mean? I mean, how exactly would a low growth world impact on government budgets? Well, I think it's worth just first of all going through, because we're talking about uncertainty, what are the range of plausible scenarios? What, what, because... We don't know what the world looks like. So what are the sort of worlds we could see? So I think the most likely one is sort of this steady as she goes world. So, you know, this is where real income growth is, you know, pretty middling. We could have plot along like we have recently, perhaps a little bit higher if some of these, this, the cyclical overhang of the GFC sort of diminishes. Immigra- uh, sorry, not immigration. Inflation might be relatively low. Interest rates might be relatively low. Um, and the economy sort of just plods along relatively well. It's something close to, or if not at, say, what the Treasury and others are projecting for things like the intergenerational report. And I think this is the best, the base, it's not the best case, sorry, it's the base case for most policymakers today. It's what's built into forecasts. And that would be a world where we'd have some issues, but we may not be, it may not be that bad. Um, but we'll come to that on the budget side. I think the world that we're worried about, or at least I in particular am worried about, is you know, this world where real income growth is slow, the you don't get much of an improvement from where we are now in terms of productivity. There's the cyclical upswing that comes from and leaving the GFC behind is pretty weak. So then productivity growth is slower in the future. The question about inflation really comes down to how monetary policy responds. So you can choose to have any level of inflation that you want, really. You know, Argentina's shown that over the years that you can get very high inflation if one wants to. Um, how much inflation you actually get is probably a hard thing to uh, to determine. Then you've there's a couple of sort of less likely scenarios, one of which is sort of like this high growth world where, you know, Robert Gordon was wrong, the robots take over, we reach some sort of technological singularity, productivity growth goes through the roof, and all these technologies that we talked about, like AI and uh, so on, really come to fruition and um, real incomes grow really quickly. And then I don't think we need to worry. And the last one is... You know, there's a few wild cards in the deck. You might get a situation of slow growth along with some big shocks like a Trump trade war or a war on the Korean Peninsula or something else where the world looks pretty bad and that's worse worse than our low growth scenario. And so if I had to rank them as the most likely, the most likely is probably steady as she goes. You know, US and Europe continue to recover. We don't have any catastrophes. The next most likely is, in my mind, is still probably low growth, low inflation. And that is the world that worries us and I think that we should probably talk about. So then, Brendan, if that is the case, if we are looking at a low growth and possibly low inflation world, how will that impact the government budgets? Well, the first thing to note is that simply if you've got lower economic growth, you've got lower growth in incomes, then the economy is smaller. Now, that obviously means that you're going to get less tax because you're going to get less tax if you with the current settings because, essentially because there's less income to tax. Um, there will be slightly less spending because some parts of the budget are indexed to um, income growth, like pensions. But overall, the net impact of those two things will be that you have, you, without policy change, you'll essentially have a worse budget position. You'll have a higher deficit or a smaller surplus than you would otherwise. And then on the, the debt side, if you've got a stock of debt, which is, you know, if you have a deficit over years, then you'll build up some sort of level of debt. That size of that debt will be larger as a share of income each year. So your debt debt to GDP ratio will be higher. So if real incomes are lower, so so we've got slower GDP growth, the the deficit is bigger without policy change and public debt will be higher as a share of GDP. And one of the measures of the sustainability of the budget is how big is your public, public debt compared to the size of the economy. Now, then it's worth thinking about, okay, well, what about inflation? So... We, if you have a low growth world, you may also have lower inflation now, but not necessarily. That's more a question about how the monetary policy of the country responds, so how the Reserve Bank responds. 
Now, if you have low inflation, then you'll probably, in the long term, you'll probably have a situation where incomes are lower because you tax the nominal economy. So you tax nominal income growth and spending will be lower as well because a lot of our sort of spending items are indexed to inflation. So everything from the new start payments, so you income, a lot of your income support payments to the, the grants that are given to states are, are indexed against some kind of wages or, in, or, or pure inflation measure. And so that probably hurts the budget balance a little bit if you have low inflation in the long term. And then I think it's worth mentioning that in the short term, if you have low inflation, then one of the issues that you have is what we've seen over the last decade, which is essentially that the, the Commonwealth in particular has had quite a large budget deficit and has expected bracket creep to get them back to, to surplus. And what I mean by bracket creep is essentially that the tax brackets that you have are fixed. So the top marginal tax rate is a, bracket is $180,000. Um, that means if incomes go up, including because of inflation, then you tax, on average, everyone pays a higher rate of personal income tax, means the government collects more money, you end up with a better budget position without changing any tax policy, um, any of the tax settings. And when you say bracket creep, I'm assuming you mean that because incomes are going up, you also then increase the size of the bracket. Is that right? So you go from 80,000 being the beginning of a bracket to 90,000 being the beginning of the bracket. Well, no, that's what should happen if government responded. But if government doesn't respond, then if you go from someone earning 80,000, ends up earning 90,000 instead, they used to pay a lower rate of tax. They cross a bracket and a larger share of their income is taxed at the higher tax rate. So if you think someone at the top rate, if you're earning $160,000, then your marginal tax rate is say 37.5%, excluding things like the Medicare levy. Once you get over 180,000, it becomes what, 45%. Mm, so you, more people are moving into the next bracket is what you're saying by bracket. Yes. I see. And the larger share of their income is in that bracket. So Brendan, would it be fair to say that you could imagine a sort of hypothetical government where all of its spending and taxing was indexed in an appropriate way to the real resources generated through the economy and in in that if if you had you know a beautifully indexed government then you wouldn't need to worry about what the growth rate was because whatever it is would grind out an appropriate tax and spending set of rules but we don't have anything like that government we've got a whole set of nominal rules including these income tax brackets that you just asked about Megan that mean that if we're stuck with a structurally lower growth rate we will end up with big deficits unless we make a whole lot of deliberate changes to how we tax and spend. Yeah, that's right. And on the debt side, I think it is quite important to note that you know, one of the ways that we got out of the debt, the high public debt that we had through the 1950s and so on after World War II is one of the reasons why that, why that wasn't such an issue is the economy grew so quickly relative to the existing debt stock that it shrank as a share of GDP. So we didn't necessarily pay that back that debt stock particularly quickly. But you went from a world where income per capita was much lower to a world where income per capita sort of doubled or tripled in like a relatively short period of time. And as a result, the debt that was sort of had had been borrowed doesn't isn't indexed to inflation or to incomes. It's sort of static. And so it became much smaller over time. So if we look forward, you could go from a world where I think on the current budget projections, um, debt's getting close to 20% of, of GDP net debt. Um, and one of the big ways that a lower rate of growth will affect that sort of debt to GDP stock is, assen- is essentially that um, that debt stays larger relative to incomes for a much longer period of time. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't shrink away anywhere near as quickly. So of course, um, one of the other effects that would come in a low growth world is you may find that interest rates are lower for longer. And that would mean that the government could borrow at a lower rate, which would have some offsetting impact on the debt to GDP level. Our My suspicion, I haven't got the numbers in front of me, my suspicion is certainly that the lower growth, it depends obviously how much growth is lower versus how much interest rates are lower. But my suspicion is probably that lower growth would have a bigger impact in lifting up the debt to GDP ratio than the interest rate fall would have in lowering the debt to GDP ratio. But that's a question, that, that's an open question for discussion. Perhaps another podcast at another time. Well, it depends what our listeners think of this one. <laughs> that's true. Let us know. <laughs> okay, so that's kind of how a low growth world would impact the budget. But just how big is that impact? 
So it's worth pointing out that we're starting off in a world with a budget deficit of a couple of percentage points of GDP. Um, and we've had that those sort of deficits for quite a long time now, for most of the last decade. So debt, net debt to GDP is approaching 20%. But the actual impact, the PBO, the Parliamentary Budget Office and the Treasury in their intergenerational report have both done sensitive analysis about what would happen to the budget if growth was slower. And the scenario they tend to use is productivity growth is slower. So for the PBO, they estimate that if um, productivity growth is half percentage point slower between now and 2024-25, then the the budget deficit is 1.1% larger than otherwise would be and net debt to GDP is 5 percentage points larger than it would be otherwise as well. So, you know, a net debt to GDP is not a 5% is not the end of the world. Like Australia is, despite a decade where we haven't done probably as good as we should have on budget policy or even more than that, um, we're still looking at, we're pretty, we're in pretty good shape. Like net debt to GDP is sort of hovering around or a bit below 20%. That's a lot less than you see in a lot of other countries where you're talking about 50, 60, 70, 80% of GDP in debt. Um, and that's when you, st- or Japan, which is more than 200%. So that's where you're sort of getting really big problems. But if you look at over 30 or 40 years, like the IGR does, then. The IGR? It, so the intergenerational report. So the right. last one was in 2015. If productivity growth is 0.1% slower than otherwise, then the budget is, um, the deficit is 0.35% larger than otherwise. So if you think of the same situation as the PBO, if productivity growth is half a percentage point slower, then you're talking about a worsening in the in the deficit of, you know, close to two percent of of GDP or one and a half percent of GDP. That's a that's a big number. Um so about one point seven percent of GDP. And so if you th- sorry, that's after a decade of that growth shortfall. That's the flow. So that's how much the deficit is worse over time. Now, obviously, the debt level is much would be much worse as well, and so this comes on top of some of the like the really well known demographic risks to the budget. So, you know, we've known for a long period of time that since the first intergenerational report in two thousand and two, that um, population aging is going to have a big impact on 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 government budgets because a lot of things that we spend money on, whether it's health, whether it's um, uh, the age pension, aged care, all these things. You know, we're going to be spending more money on those things as a larger share of the population sort of needs more of those services. So we know healthcare increases, demand increases rapidly with age. Um, it's increased even faster because of technology growth. And then on the flip side, you're going to have less people working per person who's retired. So you're going to have fewer people, a smaller proportion of the workforce paying tax. And those two things together can have a really big impact on the budget position, which is why the IGR was created in the first place. But unfortunately, what's happened, we've done less to fix these problems over the last 10 to 15 years. And instead, what we've done is actually increase the size of budgetary transfers to older Australians. So, for example, back in the late 1980s, on the average 65-plus-year-old household got just under $20,000 a year in benefits, if you think of the the benefits they receive, cash and in kind, so the pension plus health plus any education services they receive, less the taxes paid, and now they're getting more than thirty thousand dollars a year. So you've had a ten thousand dollar increase, and most ten thousand dollars per year increase per household, and most of that occurred between two thousand three, two thousand four, and two thousand nine, two thousand ten. So we actually increased the amount that we're spending on older Australians, reduced the amount of tax that they're paying because of super tax breaks because of the Senior Australian Pensioners Tax Offset. And what that's meant is that that's worth about $20 billion a year already of the budgetary costs. So of, of the budget deficit that's now sitting at about $30 billion a year, two-thirds of that essentially came about because of this increase in payments and reduction in taxes for older Australians when we already knew we had this big intergenerational problem. You put those two things together, so the fact that we are going to face larger pressures um, on the budget because of population ageing, with the prospect of a lower growth world, which will reduce taxes, um, increase the deficit without policy change, unless we do tighten our belts and it increase, um, make the debt stock probably less sustainable than otherwise because incomes will grow less slowly. You could you could be in for quite a difficult situation if these two things came about. And you know, if you look around the world, when countries have had big problems with their debts, it's normally a combination of probably bad policy making. So in the case of say Greece, and we're not saying in any, I'm not saying in any sense that we're anywhere near Greece, but Greece's fiscal position got worse over a long period of time because it spent more than it taxed. 
and then you had a big shock. And the combination of those two things means that you can go from a relatively low debt to GDP ratio to quite a high one in quite a short space of time if you have a big shock to the economy on top of the fact that the budget really is an imbalance in the long term anyway. So we haven't been doing what we should have been, essentially, by the sounds of it, for the last 10, 15 years. Policymakers haven't been putting in place the policies that they should have been. Yes. So what should they have been doing? Or what should they do now to respond to these risks of a potential low-growth world? So it's a bit like the question about how the, the, the policymakers should respond to the fact that economic growth might be lower, which is there's a whole bunch of things that you could do that would boost growth, but none of them are really easy. It's no different when it comes to the budget. So there are certainly a bunch of things that we could do to boost, um, to, to fix the budget. A lot of them relate to basically shift, reversing that trend I just discussed earlier. So reversing that shift in the expansion entitlements to older Australians while reducing their tax. So Grattan did a big exercise called balancing budgets in 2013, where it essentially looked at, okay, what are all the things that you could do that would fix the budget and how bad would they be for other things that we care about, like inequality? And by that, we really mean, do they hit the bottom 20% of the population? What do they do to economic growth and so on? And some of the big ones that really stood out were um, fixing the age pension assets test to include the family home in there. So at the moment, roughly half of all age pension spending goes to those with net wealth of more than $500,000, 20% goes to those with net wealth of more than a million dollars. And it's because the home, the family home is largely excluded from the age pension assets test. So if you own a home in Turak, um, you receive the same pension roughly as someone who owns a home in Bendigo in regional Victoria, and the same applies around the country. A lot of Grattan's work more recently has been focused on some of those tax policy changes that you could make that might help fix the budget at least cost the economy. Now, superannuation tax breaks is a big one. So we think that you could scale back those super tax breaks um, to older Australians and probably save roughly $6 billion a year. That would involve making tax-free super. So currently, um, super earnings are tax-free once you're in retirement. You would tax them at 15%, the same as younger households are taxed on their super. You would scale back the amount of contributions that you could make in a tax-preferred way um, down to $11,000 a year and you would tighten up on what are called post-tax contributions, which is where people put money in, typically very close to retirement, on the expectation is that it would then get access to tax-free super earnings or ta- any any sort of tax break. Other things like negative gearing and capital reforms to the capital gains tax discount, you could save a, a few billion dollars there. Changing the senior Australian and pensioners tax offset would save roughly a billion dollars. You add up those things and you sort of get to some relatively large numbers. So if we're talking about a budget deficit of 30 odd billion dollars a year, you might get $10 billion a year back just from the economy picking up from where it is now, particularly um, inflation picking up a bit more than where we've been. And then you're talking about you need roughly to say, call it $20 billion of budgetary savings, like real savings. Those three things would get you quite a long way there. There are lots of others as well. There's there's things that we think you could do on pharmaceuticals, um, on med- so medicines, pharmaceuticals, uh, pathology, um, other bits and pieces, and you might actually get to a place where you can largely fix though the budget situation. But all of these are tough choices. None of them um, are easy. They all involve taking money off someone. Now the government got away with doing some super tax changes in the bu- in in the budget last year and took them to the election. Um, they've now been legislated. Uh, Labor is planning to do more. Labor is planning to do something on negative gearing. On oh, another one I should mention is you could probably do something on the GST, so raising the GST to 15% and brought in the base. Now, that's one that would help the states as well, um, and potentially a lot of the money would go to the states, but it's unlikely the Commonwealth would do it unless it actually got something out of the deal because it's going to take most of the political heat. Mm, I would have thought that would be yeah quite a politically sensitive issue. Yeah, it has been, and that's partly why we haven't seen that change made. Um, but these are the options. There's only a few. Um, if, if, if those are interested, you can look at balancing budgets. Um, the report that we put out in 2013, that goes through all of these options. And they, you know, these are the big ones. And instead, what the government has been relying upon is bracket creep. So um, not changing the tax rates and collecting more revenue. That will probably be effective if the economy picks up. So if you actually see inflation pick up, you will definitely get more tax revenues through the door. But there's only so much you can do that before you hit a point where you know people will notice that they're paying high taxes and um, you'll, you'll see a return to the sort of pre-election 
tax cuts that we saw through previous eras through the Howard era, although they'll probably be smaller because we don't have the budgetary space to do much more. So just to bring it back to the debate, you know, are we in a low growth world? Are we facing a low growth future? These are obviously just smart policy decisions regardless, but do these policy decisions change depending on if we are in a structural low growth world or we're just facing a cyclical um, downturn? Well, I think here's the rub, right? Like, so if you're... If, you're, if you think the economy is just growing slower than it should be because we're in a cyclical downturn, we're still in the overhang of the global financial crisis, then one of the things you might want to do, you know, is use fiscal policy to spend more or cut taxes. Sorry, I'm just going to break in for a second because you've spoken about a couple of terms um, throughout the podcast here. You've talked about monetary policy and you've talked about phys- fiscal policy. And just for the listeners at home, can we get a clear understanding of the difference between these two? Sure. So I'm happy to have a stab at it. And then um, if Jim disagrees with my uh, my definition, he is most welcome to come over and um, to, and uh, clarify as, as, as he sees fit. So monetary policy is really about how you use interest rates to guide um, aggregate demand in the economy. So when we're talking about monetary policy or fiscal policy, you're really talking about, so in the, you're talking about using, monetary policy is about using inflation targeting to, um, get the economy to be operating at its potential. So we tend to try to get in um, inflation between two and 3% of GDP, and we set interest rates in such a way to achieve that outcome. Cause that's sort of been the world that's been consistent with sort of full employment um, and um, a sort of state well, stable inflation rate, full employment. And so, so if you lower interest rates, then obviously you're making credit cheaper and it's therefore easier for people to borrow to either invest as households or as businesses. Mm -hmm. Fiscal policy is about using the budget like we did during the global financial crisis to help manage the economy. So if you see a big recession on the horizon, like what we did see leading into the global financial crisis when the North Atlantic financial system essentially collapsed, then we we saw Kevin Rudd as PM and Dwayne Swan as treasurer use fiscal policy to try to plug a hole to in demand because people looked at that crisis and thought, holy crap, I'm not going to have a job. And so people cut back their spending and that makes the whole downturn even worse than it would be otherwise. So by using fiscal policy in that sense, you can boost growth. So essentially fiscal policy is about governments spending money and monetary policy is about governments encouraging others to spend money. Yeah, the Reserve Bank encouraging them to spend money. That's, that's a great way of putting it. Do you agree, Jim? Well, I would just add that these um, these two policies can be useful for countering cyclical changes in the economy, but they're not going to be material to changing your long-run growth rate, which I guess is the, the broader focus of this discussion is around how do you tighten your belt as a government when, you, when, you, uh, when you're faced with a lower long-run growth rate. And... Um, on, on, on that basis, you only have to look at Japan, who had uh, ran, ran significant fiscal deficits for many, many years without having much impact on the trend growth rate. There's a whole arcane discussion about what more they could have done on the monetary side, but I think the fundamentals are that um, if you, if you've, like Australia has been, running a structural deficit for many years and we're growing just a touch below trend, you do have to ask yourself... Um, the sort of questions that Brendan's been asking, which is uh, from a scenario perspective, you've got to manage manage the prospects that low growth is here to stay for an extended period and look practically at what you're going to do to get the budget back back on track. So a great example, I think, of this conundrum about whether you should be trying to return the budget to surplus because we're worried about a long-term slowdown in economic growth with its long-term impacts on the budget versus should we be doing a bit more now to boost growth on the fiscal side is the austerity we saw in across a lot of European economies, particularly places like the UK, where they essentially have cut back budget uh, government spending quite a lot. Um, and as a result, the economy, the budget, sorry, the recession was probably larger than what it otherwise needed to be. Um, so, but it has the impact in the long run of potentially me- making their budget position better, but particularly in the short run, it's a bigger hole for much longer on the way through. 
Yeah, I think that's right. And the, the only difference that I think is worth bearing in mind in the Australian context is that um, unlike the position of a country which is stuck on the euro, we also have our own currency and that gives us some more flexibility to use those monetary and fiscal tools in a coordinated fashion. So you could imagine that a budgetary tightening of the type that Brendan's just advocated for could be less painless for an economy like Australia because we do have our own monetary policy. And then again, there's an arcane debate about how effective that might be in an environment where interest rates are low. Uh, But regardless, we've got more flexibility than, say, a peripheral Eurozone country would have had when uh, when, uh, interest rates and the rest of monetary policy were being set with a a broader objective in mind um, rather than uh, with, the, with the aim of trying to stabilise output in that particular economy. So how could um, monetary policy boost growth then in Australia's context? Well, again, I think just in the, in the context of um, uh, uncertainty about what the trend rate of growth is, no, I, I don't think anybody seriously thinks that monetary policy can make a difference to that trend, except if poor monetary policy results in the kind of decay to the productive capital stock that we talked about in the last podcast. And I think the right way to think about monetary policy in that environment is you've got a restricted set of objectives around ensuring that the economy is um, delivering a consistent inflation rate and that you've got monetary stability and that you've got, to some degree, um, in, in addition... Uh, the economy operating close to its productive capacity and there's different parts of the Reserve Bank's mandate which touch on those different components. And uh, in, in fact, the interaction between that world and, the, and the, the world of fiscal policy in the very long run is very minimal, right? You've still got to manage your budget as a government regardless of what the central bank might be doing in terms of monetary policy. You can have challenges to the budget in the, in the in the form that Brendan, you set out if inflation is different than you expected because we've built all of this budget machinery that's all in nominal terms. And so if the inflation rate's different than you expect, then you're going to get different budget outcomes. And so I think the, the big picture from the point of view of uh, monetary authorities about this low growth world is they're working hard to make sure that they're not contributing to it by permitting the economy to... Um, to, to operate below potential for too long. And as we as we reflected on last time, one of the constraints in the Reserve Bank's case is that they would probably like to have more stimulatory monetary policy, but they're concerned about financial stability. And so then that opens up that whole world of macro prudential policy and the range of steps have been taken to try to ensure that the Reserve Bank has got a bit more room to be stimulatory on the monetary side by constraining some of the financial risks through steps that the prudential regulator APRA has taken. But in some sense, all of that is really all of that, that whole world of using monetary policy policy to stabilise the economy, uh, you know, you, you can do a great job on that and it doesn't get away from the fact that the government can't run deficits forever. Um, uh, at, at least it can't, it can't run deficits um, that, that are going to increase probably more accurately can't run deficits that are going to result in an increased debt to GDP ratio forever. And Brendan, I just wanted to ask one question for you about the intergenerational implications of low growth. We touched on that last time, but not much in the context of uh, policy, right? To what extent do you think the Australian community and therefore policymakers need to be thinking hard about who wins and loses in this low growth world when it comes to setting policy? Oh, well, I think they should be thinking about it a lot more than they do. And that's been the basis for a lot of our work over the last couple of years from um, the Wealth of Generations report right through to what we're doing now on things like housing. So the big way in which low growth world really affects um, that sort of intergenerational story is obviously on the budget side. If you have higher deficits for longer accumulating public debt, eventually that does need to be paid back in some form. And those that will pay that back will be future generations that won't get access to the same entitlements that have caused the problems now. Um, They'll either be paying higher taxes or be getting much lower levels of of support um, than what older generations are currently getting. And so just to put it in context, like every 
every $40 billion budget deficit is roughly equivalent, we estimate, to $10,000 of extra tax or, to be honest, lower um, benefits that someone gets in cash or in kind out of the budget you know, each year. So, or sorry, over the rest of their lives. So that's definitely one way in which it has a big impact. The other way that I think is really underappreciated is that when you lower interest rates, so we've seen interest rates go down a lot. So there's been a big debate um, about what the structural um, or the neutral interest rate is. So we talked last week about the fact that things like population aging mean that uh, potentially interest rates will be lower in future than what they have been in the past. So I think the Reserve Bank in its in its recent monetary policy statement talked about some research that had been done internally on the neutral interest rate being three and a half percent, down from say something closer to five or six percent, you know, a, a, a few years ago. Now one of the big ways that, that affects people is, and I think housing is the perfect illustration of it, is it means that if you lower interest rates, then you tend to boost asset prices. So the value of that asset, the the income that you get from an asset is worth more in net present value terms when you've got lower interest rates and you can obviously borrow more to buy more and all the rest of it. And one of the implications has been is a big redistribution of wealth across generations. So those that already owned assets at the beginning of the world of low interest rates, like housing, have done exceptionally well. So the net wealth of sort of 50, 60 and 70 year olds in Australia on average has gone up enormously over the last decade as interest rates have come down. Whereas the net wealth of those um, who are, say, age 25 to 34, for example, is, has barely changed over the last decade or so because they didn't own assets at the start of this one-off shift down in interest rates. Um, now, we're not talking about sort of the fact we have low interest rates because we've had a recession around the world, but just the fact that interest rates have come down in sort of in a secular sense, in a structural sense. The fact that then interest rates have been low because growth has been low has given an even bigger kick to those asset markets than what you would have seen. And I think it's really underappreciated that, that there's enormous um, wealth implications from that, that monetary policy change, that that's made life probably much harder for younger Australians who may, they may solve the problem by inheriting property and other things, but as we know, inheritances tend to be narrowly focused on people in their 50s. And they don't get them until they're 50 or 60 because the average Australian lives to 80. And those inheritances tend to be really skewed to those that are also wealthy themselves. And that's likely to just increase too, the, you know, the average age of... When, 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 when you get an inheritance. Yeah. yeah, it's not near the end of your working life. It's nowhere near the start. Um, and so as a result, you're seeing these... For, because you remember for someone who's young, um, an increase in house prices implies essentially an increase in their future housing costs. So whether you're eating up an asset, you're living in the house and therefore you're not getting the benefit of that capital, or if you're renting, you're spending a lot more money, there's big redistribution effects across society between those that don't own assets and those that do. And another potentially underappreciated implication of this reduction in interest rates is that it can also be associated with a decline in investment returns in superannuation. So in the extreme case, if, we, if we've now entered a world where We've had this one-off big change in interest rates that boosted all asset values, but then the growth in asset values and the return on capital is going to be lower going forward. Then some of the fundamental aspects of how we fund retirements might need to shift. So it might no longer be the case that a 9% superannuation inflow is sufficient to fund people's retirements, especially if they're living longer. You'll need to start looking at changes to the whole pay-as-you-go system to pensions and around the world different Economies are in very different positions in that regard. I think it's that's a great point. It's worth distinguishing between the generations that benefit from the windfall gain, who are probably on on the numbers that we see on on in superannuation, the retirement income space, are doing pretty well because their asset values have gone up a lot, and therefore you can draw down on that capital, and that capital draw that the larger capital that you have to draw down outweighs the lower returns you'll get in retirement, versus those that are say thirty today. Who are likely to they didn't get that windfall gain and they're likely to face lower returns now that's probably something for another podcast down the track is one of the impacts of lower returns is that you know given the way that we, the world works is that we build we save through our life we reinvest the returns and then we draw down on the benefit on the accumulated savings in retirement if you have lower returns you're talking about lower retirement savings but you're also talking about lower overall lifetime incomes so you're worse off in the future when you retire, 
but you've also probably means that you've got to save a bit more, which means you're worse off now. And that's a question we'll get to, I think, when we do one on the super guarantee a little bit down the track. Great. Well, I'm, I'm tightening my belt as we speak. Me too. <laughs> just one, just one, other, one other, I think, quick point to on the, the fiscal side is that when we, we – so we face this dilemma between um, do we spend more now to boost growth if we're below potential or do we start to tighten our belt to deal with the long-term consequences of potentially lower growth world? Now, those two things sort of, in theory, you know, you might you might choose a path that says, well, we might tighten our belt a little bit, but there's always the risk. So you're, you're a bit careful. But I think it's worth really pointing out the political economy problem, challenge of it's much harder to cut back on spending or to fix the budget than it is to spend or give a tax cut in lieu of some sort of windfall gain that sort of drops out of the sky. So if the economy turns out to be better than we expect, it's pretty easy as we saw during the 2000s to either give tax cuts or spend the, the extra money. As we've seen in the decades since the global financial crisis, it's pretty hard politically to fix budgets. So I would suggest that the precautionary principle comes into play, that given how hard it is to fix budgets, you might want to sort of lean against the wind a bit and probably fix the budget a little bit more now. And a lot of the things that we talked about on this podcast today are things that don't hit the budget right now as well they affect future entitlements so you can phase them in and so the macroeconomic impacts of these things on growth are quite muted because they're you're reducing the amount of money that you'd probably otherwise plan to spend on these entitlements 10 years from now and i think that's why we focus so much on those sort of age-based entitlements super and the age pension because those are things if you fit if you use them to fix the budget you know the OECD talks about a credible forecast or a credible path back to surplus the most credible path is a legislated one if you've legislated it into your, your, your into into law in your tax code or in your in your social security system about things like the age at which you retire whether tax super is tax free in retirement these sorts of things then you've already set yourself up to fix the budget problem both in a low growth world and also some of the challenges that we face even if growth turns out to be normal because we've got this population aging issue. So it looks like we have some decisions to make then, whether we are in a low growth world or not, um, and that will inform policy. So it will be very interesting to see what the next few years bring in terms of economic policy in Australia. Um, I wondered if you'd each like to just sum up, you know, like if, if you could call Scott Morrison today, our, our treasurer, and say, this is what we should do. Do you have an opinion on that? Or is it still is it still unknown? I suppose what I would say is given the uncertainty um, about what world we look like we're going to be in, and you know, as a treasurer, it's all about luck. There is a big difference between the political fortunes of treasurers that had lived in good times and those that lived in bad. Um, it's not something you can control, but what he what what Treasurer Scott Morrison can control is, you know, do we try to get the budget back into a sort of a long term balance by making some of these hard choices and trying to get them through the party room and through the parliament, I think we've seen with superannuation that that can actually work if you explain the problem that we have these budget deficits, that there's potentially lower growth going forward, that we have a, a, an aging population and the, explain the need for why the budget needs to be repaired would certainly be one way of then setting up the groundwork for making some of these tough choices. Yeah, I would just add that I think a really effective treasurer is one who articulates to the community what the what the the true difficult nature of the challenges that uh, that the society faces, and clearly in this context, always to spend is to tax. Some point you've got to pay the money back or pay the interest on the debt that you've accumulated, and therefore there's no sense in which there's a free lunch by running a deficit. You know, yes, people are going to be uh, um, disappointed when spending goes away or when taxes are increased, whatever combination the Treasury uses to get back in balance. But this is only bringing forward something that's going to happen anyway at a much bigger scale if we don't fix the problem now. And so to my mind, a really effective Treasurer would be having that dialogue uh, continually with the, with the community to articulate that the, uh, the opportunity there is to change the budget in a way that's fair and if you can, to change in a way that's also going to drive economic growth through shifts of the tax mix in the way that we talked about at the start of this podcast. And, um, you know, it's an ongoing dialogue. The community is obviously um, 
jointly invested with the government in getting a great outcome over the years. But uh, things can slide as they have in recent years if you're not level enough with the community and you're not engaging enough with them about the, the choices that we face. So face up to the size of the problem. That's right. Uh, thanks again for your time today, Brendan and Jim. This is obviously a really important area of Australia's policy and it's been so great to spend so much time understanding the debate and the consequences a little better. As I mentioned in my intro, if you have enjoyed this slightly different style of podcast from Grattan, then please do get in touch and let us know. Tweet at us at Grattan Inst or Facebook us, Grattan Institute, or head to the website, grattan.edu.au and send us some feedback. And follow us on those aforementioned social media platforms or subscribe to our newsletter to stay up to date with all our news, research and events. You can also head over to iTunes and give us a rating or review. Until next week, thanks for listening. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate. Grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.